Are Christians supposed to keep the law of Moses? Stay tuned. We're talking today on Truth Be Told, Hosea 4-6 podcast. Don't go nowhere. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's your boy Trevi Trev, one half of TVT Hosea 4-6, coming back to you. I told you I was coming back to y'all. I wasn't going to leave you hanging. I told you last episode when we talked to Father Vincent Lampert, who is a Roman Catholic exorcist, I said, I want to do a show on Christians and the law of Moses. And so I had the opportunity right before I started my doctoral program to dig into this book by Dr. R.L. Solberg which is titled Torahism or Christians required to keep the law of Moses. And let me tell you, this is a book that you want to get, especially, let me say, especially in light of today's situations that we see, of course, with Kanye West and Kyrie Irving, it is bringing much conversation. I know I've had a few folks who have messaged me on social media, uh, personal pages. Uh, and then again, our TBT Hosea for six page, uh, just wanted to get some information about, you know, the law and different sects of uh, sects of Israelite beliefs, uh, if you would. And so I, I thought, hey, let me reach out to the author of this book uh, who has chapters. Let me give you some of these chapters because these are these are very gripping. So he starts off with what is Torah? And I think a lot of Christians don't understand what exactly is Torah, how that breaks down. What is Torahism? Uh, then he gets into about claims about the Torah, claims about the commandments, historical claims, which is true because we're getting ready to approach Christmas. So the only thing we're going to hear is it's pagan and Constantine had everything to do with that. So, yeah, we're going to get into some of that. Um, and then also claims about the Trinity. So uh, we're going to get we're going to talk a little bit about this. We're not going I don't want to detail the whole book. I just want, you know, doctors uh, Solberg and, and myself to get you proned enough to go buy this because it is a really good read. It's not a heavy academic read. So don't worry about having a dictionary next to you like some of these other books and <laughs> trying to look up some meaning of words or, you know, a lexicon, if you would, for the Hebrew and the Greek. But he does a brilliant job in this book. But I don't want to take up too much time. Doc, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate you reaching out, Trevor. I'm excited to, to chat with you. Um, yeah, so one quick thing I'll I'll do. I have to clarify one thing, and this happens all the time. But I'm not actually a doctor. I don't have my doctorate yet. Gotcha. Uh, but I am a professor, so I get that a lot. People call me Doctor Solberg. So I'm just regular old Rob to my friends like you. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, pre I really appreciate you having me on, and you you bringing up some great great topics and very important and timely stuff to discuss. Absolutely, yes, sir. So are you are you working on your PhD? I am. Yeah. Oh, okay. Nice. Same, same. You probably further along. I just started. So okay. really started. Yeah. I'm, um, I started, I had to do a couple Greek preliminary classes. So Greek three, Greek four. And so, uh, I started my first doctoral seminar in January. So awesome. Yeah. Prayers awesome, from our, man. from our audience. So, <laughs> cause my head is just, even with the Greek, my, uh, my doctoral supervisor emailed me the other day and was like, Hey, I know that Greek three is a challenge and it is with syntax. Oh my and goodness, all that. Yeah. <laughs> Languages are tough. 
Yeah, you right. can get the basic word definitions, but once you start getting into the, like you said, the syntax and the sentence structure and all that, it's it it crazy. is it right. It is just we so and the, the biggest thing I was telling my wife is is deadlines throughout the week, which is fine with me. But by the time you get to Saturday and they where I'm at now, Columbia International you know, Columbia International, I get out International University. There we go. Come on, Trev. Uh, they're so gracious to say, hey, look, we want you all to have a Sabbath. So your work is due Saturday. Take Sunday off to rest. And trust me, by the time you get to Sunday, you need it. You need it. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing else you break. can do. <laughs> I hear you. So true. So, yes, sir. Well, well uh, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, sure. before we jump right into it. Yeah, so I'm uh, I live in uh, just south of Nashville with my wife of 30 years. I'm a uh, professor at a local college, Williamson College. Uh, I've written a couple books. One you're talking about. And there's another book too that's more of a historical look at the first three decades of the Christian uh, Christian world. Um, and I'm I've got a blog. I've got a YouTube channel defending the biblical roots of Christianity. And uh, a lot of my work. So I, so I'm an apologist, I guess primarily. And a lot of my work, almost all of it, is based around this idea of Hebrew roots and what's the proper relationship of a Christian to the law, um, which is, it's an interesting area. And, I, and I'll tell you, I was not, um, I didn't set out to do this. My, my interest for years and years was uh, the intersection of faith and science and, you know, uh, atheism versus faith in God and those sorts of, you know, large popular uh topics and then right. god god just totally led me into this um what i what i say he led me through the back of the wardrobe into this other world of what i i've labeled torahism and we can get into that in a bit mm -hmm. what that what that word means but most folks would know it as as hebrew roots movement or torah observant christianity right. or torah keepers and so that's kind of where i've been for the last four plus years uh, and, and just diving deep into the biblical roots of our faith and understanding what's our what's our right relationship to the law, to mm -hmm. our to our Jewish brothers and sisters, and then there's all these other things that come along with it. What's Messianic Judaism? How is that different? And what about you know Sabbatarianism and and Seventh Day Sabbath? So anyway, there's a lot of stuff that's involved, but this ends up being the um, not necessarily the assignment I picked, but it's definitely the one God's given to me for right now. Right, and, and I've just fallen in love with kind of that understanding the roots it's it's just really amazing yeah let me uh, let me tell you I, i'm not saying this to to just hype everybody up about this book you if let me say this because with with certain groups um there's there's certain groups even within um black hebrew israelism that did a church blitz on easter with certain targeting certain african-american churches and so i don't think we on the side of christianity sometimes don't dialogue enough about what exactly is the law. Are we supposed to keep the law? What did Christ mean in Matthew 5, 17, 18? Right. What, what does he mean by that? Because that's a stumper, you know, right. or, you know, are we supposed to keep the Sabbath? Well, I don't see the Sabbath changing. That's a common. So we don't, I don't think we're equipped sometimes enough with these conversations because the way it seems like, and I'm not trying to broad brush that some churches have gone is to, health and wealth and God wants you to have this, God wants you to have that, God wants you to have this, 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 and this. And we're not equipped. I think when we read our New Testament in large, it's a lot of it is combating Judaizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so but anyways, well, I don't want to jump too far ahead. <laughs> Let's get into your book. So what exactly is the Torah? 
Okay. Yeah. That's a fundamental. That's I think that's my first chapter pretty much right. because we need to understand the distinction. And part of the problem we have when we're talking with Hebrew roots folks is that we have different definitions of, of terms. And so I wanted to kind of set the table and, and describe it. So the Torah uh, Torah in, in Hebrew actually means, it doesn't really mean law. It, it means instruction and guidance mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So the English translation of that word into the word law is not inaccurate, but it also paints, it, it paints a, a different picture because the, the view that modern, especially us in the Western world, the, the view we have of the idea of a law is different than what was intended. So Torah itself, that word means instruction. And so when people use the term Torah, however, it's also used to refer to other things. I think I think the technical term Torah, uh, especially in in the Hebrew scriptures, it refers to the first five books, the Pentateuch. So Matthew, Mm -hmm. Matthew, I'm starting in the wrong Testament, aren't I? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, those those are called the Torah. Because that's really, and it, with the exception of Genesis, there's no actual real law given there. But you know, the the story right. of of the uh, of the Exodus out of Egypt and the and the giving of the law starts in Exodus and goes through Deuteronomy. And so, technically, when someone says the Torah, mm-hmm. that's the primary, uh, what I would call the primary definition. However. And this is where things get weird. So I've already told you that Torah kind of means, it actually means instruction. And it's a term used to apply to the first five books of the Bible. However, there's a concept of what they call keeping Torah. Right. And that, that doesn't mean keep the first five books of the Bible. It means keep the laws given in the first five books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so Jewish tradition says there's 613 mitzvot or, or commands given. And that's depending on how you want to count it, it's up for grabs, but there's lots, there's hundreds. Um, And so when you hear a, a Hebrew roots person or a black Hebrew Israelite or anyone else talk about keeping the Torah, what they're talking about literally is keeping the law of Moses. So, so Mm -hmm. the law of Moses is the law. It's not Moses's law. Obviously it's God's law. Moses was the mediator. So Mm -hmm. when, when God gave Israel, the, the Ten Commandments and then expanded on those throughout the rest of their time at Sinai. That is what not only we call the law of Moses, scripture itself refers to that as the mm-hmm. law of Moses. Sometimes it calls it the book of the law of Moses. But right. so that so this is the important thing I think to understand if you're ever engaging with someone in, in the Hebrew roots world, mm-hmm. is that if they say Torah, they really mean law of Moses. Right. Uh, you know, they're saying that's the thing that Christians today are required to keep. And if you don't keep those laws given at Sinai as a Christian today, they say you are walking in sin and rebelliousness towards God. So that would include things like, and I'll tell you this, the primary uh, primary commands that you're going to hear discussed in those circles, there's really only four. It's Sabbath, mm-hmm. kosher food, mm-hmm. keeping the feasts, and circumcision. And the circumcision, they don't talk a whole lot about, but when it comes up, they're, they're very much push that idea. So on all four of those things, they, they suggest, for example, the Sabbath, Shabbat that was given to the Israelites, actually just prior to Sinai when they're out wandering in the wilderness. But so they say, we're required to keep a seventh day Sabbath, the last day of the week, and required to keep all those commands that there, there's actually multiple commands about the Sabbath given in the Torah. Right. So we were supposed to keep all that. We're supposed to keep the kosher food laws. And, mm-hmm. and if you and I were to go out for a, a pork barbecue dinner, we would be sinning in doing that is what they right. would say. Oh, yeah. And the feasts are another big issue. So they expect there, there's seven feasts given in the Torah. 
um, given to Israel. Those are the mm-hmm. times and seasons of God. And they suggest, or no, they don't suggest, they teach that not keeping those feasts is a sin. And furthermore, keeping any other feast except those seven, such as Easter or Christmas today, what we keep to represent the, or, or to commemorate the birth and the, and the resurrection of Christ, right. those are also sinful. They go, they rail against those a lot. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. As being, yeah, as being unbiblical. So yeah. So that's kind of how the, how the terminology breaks down, which is why, and, and let me say this, cause this is super important. <clears throat> the Torah is beautiful. Okay. It was given by God. It was holy. It's part of our scripture. Uh, Torahism, which is the the term that I had to coin because there's not one monolithic group out there. Right. Torahism is a twisting of that. So right. Torahism is not intended necessarily as a derogatory term towards people. It's actually intended as a descriptive term towards a theology, just like you would say, hey, this guy's a Christian, this guy's a Muslim, this guy's a Jew. You know, Torahism mm-hmm. describes these people over here who believe these certain set of, of theological statements. Yeah. Yeah. That's that it's helpful. You know, um, it, it seems like sometimes they try to make they try to pit, um, you know, Christians as far as like almost like a Marcion in a way you guys just stick to. The, and it's like, no, we look at the whole of Scripture, you know, um, because it's a foreshadowing of what what is to come. You even talk about it in your book with the feast. It's not a bad thing if Christians want to, because we are actually able to see how they point to Christ. So, right. Um, it, it is, it's Torah is beautiful. I'm not, you know, I've, I, let's see, I t- I've taken one year of, of Hebrew, so I'm not expert in Hebrew, <laughs> but it is yeah, me neither. It's tough. It's right. It's a beautiful language, you know, and then even looking at, you know, seeing typologies and then we'll get into a little bit about it when it comes to the Trinity. Um, right. what some Jewish scholars say about, uh, the, you know, were the early uh, uh, Jews monotheistic or polytheistic, and then how Christianity may have an argument uh, when it comes to that. Um, but we'll get to that um, in a little bit. But so we, you broke down Torah and Torahism. What what are their claims about Torah? That it's it, it's eternal, or is it is it? Will it yeah. have an end? Or can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's two primary. Um arguments that they'll make regarding Torah and why they believe it's applicable today. And, and again, I'll say there's not a monolithic group uh, or organization. There's not a list of doctrine anywhere. So what I'm giving you is broad brushstrokes about what they believe. Not everybody believes the same thing who's involved in this, but primarily what they'll say is a, the Torah is eternal and they'll point to lots of scriptures in the old Testament in, mm-hmm. in the Tanakh, which is the Jewish name for the old Testament. Um, They'll point to that and say, look, it's eternal. It hasn't changed. So we're under it today. The second thing they'll say, they'll claim is that the Torah applies to Gentiles as well as Israel, Israelites. Um, and both of those are false. Uh, right. And I'll say this, it, it's fun. It's a little bit um, uncomfortable for me to make a black and white statement like that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, because there is a lot of nuance and we'll probably get into that. I know you're certainly a deep, deep enough thinker that you've probably already thought about a lot of those little nuances. And this is why it gets so confusing. Like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. if they do a blitz on a church and the church hasn't been taught uh, exactly why it breaks down the way it does, it's very easy for people to get caught up in like, well, wait a second, you're right. Right. It never says the Saturday Sabbath was ended. So Mm -hmm. why did we stop keeping it? You know, and those are legitimate questions. Absolutely. But what they'll do is they'll use that, that ambiguity and try to insert things in there that 
when you take the time to break them down, which is why I ended up writing a book and not just an article. It's very complex. Uh, when you take the time to break that down, you realize, well, actually, no, that's not quite how it breaks down. The, the Torah isn't eternal in the sense that they think it is. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's also not, it, it never applied to Gentiles as they suggest it does. So I, those are two of the things that I had to address in the book to, to give us a right understanding of where we sit as modern day Christians under the new covenant. Where do we sit in relation to all that stuff? You know, Right, right. Absolutely. So when you when when we get into the law of Moses um, and covenants, right? You have Abraham covenant, you have a Noah covenant, and then we have this covenant with Moses. Can you get into the differences concerning the covenant between uh, unconditional and conditional? Sure, sure. Yeah, and there's even there's even uh, so that's the nature of the covenant. There's also differences in scope. So you'll notice the Abrahamic covenant given mm-hmm. in uh, Genesis 15, I believe, is uh, it's he promised Abraham that that he would bless all the families of the earth. So it's it's a universal promise right. uh, that that applies to everybody. And that promise, if you'll recall, and I think, it, yeah, it's Genesis 15. God says, Abraham, we need to enter into a covenant and and tells Abraham, go get this list of animals. And Abraham gets the list of animals and cuts them in half. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a weird, obscure, unless you're familiar with Middle Eastern culture, it's a, it's a strange thing. Like, wh- why did Moses, it, God didn't tell him to cut them in half. How did he know to do that? What's going on there? So right. what we learn that is going on there is literally, and it's still done today by by many in the Middle East, there's, there's something called the blood covenant. They call it cutting the covenant. And it's essentially saying, look, I'm going to sacrifice these animals. And, mm-hmm. and they literally lay them down with, you know, half and half body parts. It's kind of gory, but all the blood drips together sort of into this pool of, of blood in the middle. And then you walk through that covenant. And what you're saying in that culture, you're saying, look, may, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I break this promise. Mm-hmm. And the other guy walks through and then you have an agreement and you both have made a covenant. And now that's a pretty stark uh, picture of a very strong commitment. Right. And so what you have is both, if both parties walk through that blood to affirm their commitment, you would obviously have a a bilateral, you would call it covenant, or we we might call it today agreement or contract or something uh, where each party has agreed to do something. Those are the terms. Well, in the case of Abraham, if you'll remember God, God put him to sleep. So Abraham didn't actually get to walk through that blood. Right. So God, it's really a one-sided promise with mm-hmm. God passing through as, as fire, as a torch, passing through the blood and promising to Abraham. Mm-hmm. So technically speaking, I think we could look at that as an unconditional covenant in, in covenantal terms, although there may be some argument about were there some uh, conditions of faith and such. But you know, in right. essence, that is an unconditional covenant. In other words, it's a promise from God to Abraham that through him, all the nations will be blessed. There's also fa- uh, land attached to that promise mm-hmm. and et cetera. So by contrast, you have something with the law of Moses, which was given at Sinai. It's right. the same concept that we've, we've got blood being spilled. It, you know, this, is, this happens, I believe it starts uh, Exodus 19. You start we start entering into this mm-hmm. whole process, this ceremony of the giving of the law and the covenant and all that. And there comes a point where God says, look, if you keep my law, you'll be blessed. Right. If, you, if you break my law, you'll be cursed. So Deuteronomy 28 uh, really details out all the blessings and the curses that mm-hmm. come from obedience or disobedience. So that's a conditional covenant. It's, it's based on if you keep 
right? And anything that says right. if is conditional. Right. If oh, you yeah. keep these things, yeah, then you're going to be blessed. If you don't, so there's a condition that needs to be met. And furthermore, that covenant, uh, beginning of Exodus 19, the first six verses or so says, this is the covenant I'm making with the house of Israel, uh, the the house of Jacob. So uh, this is a Hebraic parallelism. Jacob, Mm -hmm. as you'll remember, after he wrestled with God, God renamed him Israel. So house of Israel, house of Jacob means the descendants of Jacob. So we're talking about an ethnic group. And mm-hmm. also more specifically, not just the descendants of Jacob, but those that he that he rescued out of slavery in Egypt. So these are the people with whom God makes the covenant. Moses is the mediator of the covenant. Uh, and, and the Ten Commandments were the beginning of that. Uh, these are the commandments that the only commandments of all the ones given in, in Israel was at the was at Mount Sinai for about a year, continually getting more laws and learning more and trying to change from a group of recent slaves in Egypt to an actual nation set aside for God. Mm-hmm. And so as, as the, the Ten Commandments are the only commandments they heard in God's voice and that freaked them out, and the rest of them God gave to Moses, Moses gave to them. The Ten Commandments are the only commandments that were written by the finger of God in tablets of stone, right? And later stored in the Ark of the Covenant. So that's a, the Ten Commandments are really considered... Uh, and matter of fact, they called it the Ark of the Testimony because it was mm-hmm. God's testimony. And, and right. so they're really the the linchpin of the entire law of Moses. All the other yeah. 600 plus commands were given to extrapolate, to explain, to show how to live out those 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so that was a conditional covenant with the nation of Israel because God said, I will set you aside. You'll be to me a holy nation. Um and so those are pretty big differences. The, again, the Abrahamic covenant was universal, sort of promising a blessing to the, all the families of the earth, mm-hmm. whereas the whereas the Mosaic covenant was specific with Israel itself. And if you look at the blessings and curses, it has to do with Israel themselves. Right. Will they be able to take the land and all that kind of stuff? It didn't have to do universally. And then the second difference is the Abrahamic covenant and, and the Noahic covenant too are, are, are both unconditional. They're really essentially God in his amazing mercy promising things to us, to, to the human race. Uh, and the law, the law of Moses has conditions, has very specific conditions set aside, which by the way, those conditions were broken. And that's why a new covenant was necessary as Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31. 31. Yeah. It says you were, you were, you were unfaithful to me. Basically I was your husband and you were unfaithful to me as the, ter- are the terms that, that the Lord puts it in through, through the mouth of uh, Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Right. And it puts it, it puts it in perspective as, you know, why Christ came. Yeah. You right. know, so and it also shows you why all of the you, you mentioned typology earlier, why all mm-hmm. of the uh, feasts and the ceremonies and, and commands are, are pointing to Christ. They're shadows right. of him, Paul calls it, you know, so right. they're not just rule. I mean, they are rules, but they have such a deeper meaning. And that's what I love about Hebrew and, and that culture is that things things have depth and nuance to them and they mean deeper things and they mean things at multiple levels. Uh, mm-hmm. So you talk about commands, you have to keep, keep the commands. Yes. But at the same time, the, uh, the obvious one, Passover, right? Wow. We're, we're rescued. We're saved by the shedding of a blood of an innocent lamb. Right. And we're under the blood. I mean, that right. is direct right. sign of Jesus, of what he'll do centuries later. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so the biggest, I think the biggest one, uh, well, another, not the biggest one, but another big one would be if you, you know, bring Jesus now into the conversation would be, well, he kept Torah. So we need to keep the law, you know, uh, 
Jesus in uh, uh, Matthew 5, 17, 18, you know, he didn't come to do away with the law. You know, he didn't come to abolish it. And, you know, nothing's going to pass away from the law. All that good jazz. Can you right. talk to us about what did Jesus mean in Matthew 5, 17 and 18? Yeah. And actually 17 through 20 is the full 17. Right. Yeah. And what's interesting about that passage is it's really a standalone teaching. It doesn't connect with the text before or after it. And it, mm -hmm. it's the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, if you recall. And so Jesus, and it comes right before the, you have heard it said, but I say to you statements. Mm -hmm. And so, so there is, this is one of those things that I don't think is as clear cut and binary and black and white as we would like it to be. Okay. Let me talk personally. I wish he was more clear. Right. There's some, right. there's some mystery in here, <laughs> you know? And so there's a couple things in there and I've, I've looked at it from a few different angles. One of them is the idea that, well, what does he say? He says nothing, you know, on heaven and earth, not a jot or tittle of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, then we see some of the, some of the, and by the way, he says the law and the prophets. So it's not simply the law of Moses. It's more than that. He's come not to abolish the Hebrew scriptures, but to fulfill right. them, to fulfill which it. include the law. Um, and so we look at the, uh, one of the ways to look at it is to say, well, look, under the new covenant, there are things that have been, I don't know if we want to say abolished, but have been fulfilled. Let's say mm -hmm. we, so um, what would be a good example? Sacrifice, the, the atonement, the blood sacrifice on Yom mm -hmm. Kippur, for uh, for the sins of Israel, right? They, they, every right. year they were required to give this sacrifice for for their sins, mm -hmm. a blood sacrifice. And Hebrews ten makes it super clear; it mm -hmm. spells it out in no uncertain terms that there there is no longer any sacrifice for sin because Jesus was our sacrifice once for all. Right. And so you would look at that. A Hebrew roots person would say, "Well, that you know, that, I, I won't get into it right now. They'll throw a bunch of shade on that." But essentially, what it's saying is that look. Even he says at the beginning of Hebrews 10, just read through that whole whole chapter for those of you listening. Uh, it says the blood of bulls and goats could never, it was never able to take away sin. What it says right. is it was a reminder of our sin. Again, mm -hmm. another point, a symbolism pointing to Christ. Jesus came and now in the book of Hebrews, one of the things I always say is I don't know how you could be in the Hebrew roots movement if you've read through the book of Hebrews. It's or Galatians for that matter. These things are really clear here, but right. the idea is, okay, so, so I'm, I'm getting back to your question on Matthew 5. Are oh, you good? Take your time. Okay. So the idea here is, look, though the particular sin sacrifice, the requirement under the Mosaic law for a repeated yearly sacrifice of sins made by a high priest in mm -hmm. the temple is, is, is been fulfilled by Christ. So when we go back to Matthew 5 now and kind of compare those two, because if we believe all of scripture is true, which I do, I know you do too. Absolutely. Now we need to harmonize some of those things where Jesus says not a jot or tittle. He doesn't say there won't be any significant changes. He's like the tiniest thing will never change until all has been fulfilled. Right. right. And so, so then you have, well, something's been fulfilled, at least the sacrifice. And we could go on and I could talk about the, the, the priesthood being fulfilled and no longer mm -hmm. required and a number of changes that, that are clearly stated this in unambiguous ways in the new Testament. So then you have to reconcile this. And then you, so one of the things I start thinking about is, well, you know, in another passage, Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Right. You have to go, right. wait a second. He what also says, my peace, I leave with you. Yeah. So we have to grapple with the text, which by the way, I believe is what God wants us to do. He wants us to lean in and go, I need to wrestle with this like Jacob did. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so then you have the idea of, a, well, when Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace, in what sense is that true? Because we know mm -hmm. it's true in some sense. 
when Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it, in, one sen- in what sense is that true? And then we look over at like Luke 24, verses mm-hmm. 44 through 48, the resurrected Jesus now appears to his disciples and he eats some fish so they know that this isn't a hallucination. This is a real live human being back to life right. eating food in front of me. Right. And he says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, remember back when I told you that everything had to be fulfilled? Mm-hmm. Well, you guys were witnesses to it. And so it, it presents us with the scope of Jesus's statement in Matthew 5. He was talking about everything that was fulfilled in the Hebrew scriptures about the Messiah, his messianic um, prophecies and his messianic responsibilities and duties and obligations. He's basically saying, sooner would heaven and earth pass away than I wouldn't fulfill what my mission is, right? Yeah. And so then he goes to fulfill his mission. And again, in Luke 24, we see him saying, look, see, you guys were witnesses to it. I all has been he essentially saying I've fulfilled all the stuff I told you I was going to fulfill. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I look at it because we have to reconcile actual real changes um, in the in the New Testament regarding Mosaic commands. There's yeah. also the idea that the temple fell in the year AD 70, right? right. Jerusalem right. and the temple fell. Jesus predicted it. You said God obviously ordained it, and 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 so many of those Mosaic commands mm-hmm. uh, became literally impossible to fulfill without a temple. Right. And so even some people have suggested, I'm not sure I subscribe to it, that when he's talking about heaven and earth passing away in Matthew five, that he's giving a veiled reference to the temple. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting theory. I don't know if I have a position on it just yet, but. that That's the first time I've heard of that. Now I, I do know it's some scholarly debate about heaven and earth, but as far as that point, no, I haven't. That's the first time I've heard that. It's Which interesting. Is, that's it's interesting. Based, You're right. Yeah, it's based on the idea that the temple was supposed to be a a a, a type of Eden, right? Where okay. there's peace and you're dwelling yeah. with God. Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to get into that, but it's it's an interesting <laughs> theory. Now but you, the problem is we have to we have to look at the entirety of Scripture and and reconcile what it says. Yeah. And we can't do as often will happen with Hebrew roots friend our Hebrew roots friends. They'll take that Matthew five seventeen through twenty, make that their linchpin verse, and reinterpret everything through the way they think that reads. Right. You know what I mean? You know, and everybody, everybody hasn't, you know, had the opportunity to go to seminary or Bible college. Right. And let me put this plug in because there's a lot of schools now that are offering certificate programs where you can go and get the basics. And so context is extremely important. So we were wrestling with, um, I was sharing with uh, with with Mr. Solberg here, our guest today uh, with Greek three. It's you know, it is challenging because your syntax, you're putting sentences together. And so you look at a lot of different places. I mean, it's really eye opening in the Greek when you when you look at certain, you know, clauses or or tense of verbs or what have you. And so what we did on one week was we had to really grapple between, I think it's, is it Psalm 69 and, and Romans 11 and nine Paul quotes and puts that in there, but it was, it's um, where, where uh, Paul quotes David saying um, just in a nutshell, putting a table as a make their table a snare a trap uh, if you would. And so we had to look at that because in the, in, what Psalm would make it would seem what is that it's almost making God be vindictive. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at it 
you know, within the Greek, it's not, it's even with David, it's not uh, trying to make God as this vengeful type of God. But I'm just saying all that to say that it is, it's important to look at context. And I think what a lot of our, you know, our tourism only friends or or Hebrew Israelite friends do is just, they'll give you what you call, you know, topical type of lessons. We're just going to give you this passage and then we're going to run over here and try to bridge this and bridge that and bridge that. And you got to remember, okay, well, who was Matthew's primary audience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's a, a big, that makes a big difference. Right. Because it's something in uh shoot. I have my notes down here, but something in the, in the Greek that's only found it's when Matthew quotes the law, it is only found in Matthew. Something in the Greek. I forget what it is, but sure. Hold on for a second. I got it right here, matter of fact. Boom. So the future indicative, you know, is sometimes uh, used for a command, almost always in Old Testament quotations due to literal translation of Hebrew. However, it was used infrequently, even in classical Greek. Outside of Matthew, this usage is not common. It's a force it quite emphatic in keeping with combined nature of the indicative mood and future intents. In other words. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, it's you just, get some of that in the Septuagint, too, where where it's very helpful that there were Jewish translators, even prior to Jesus, that chose the Greek proper, the Greek that that best mm-hmm. captured what the Hebrew was saying. Right. You know, and, and yeah. a lot of that, a lot of that Septuagint language verses are, are um, cited in the New Testament. So we know they were reading it. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, uh, we, that's one thing we had to look at was one of the instructions was, okay, you guys need to look at that Psalm passage in the Septuagint as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot. So when he's, when he says you wrestle with the text, all this goes into play, you know, right. it yeah. goes into play. I think it's HB Charles who said something, uh, about, you know, preachers, you know, we have six days to wrestle with this text and then we give you a six day sermon in 30 minutes, you know, it, right. it, it tires you out because you spend all that week grappling and, and trying to make sure you get your points right. And, you know, did I do it justice? But yeah, that, that was a good point. I just want to inject there. Um, you also mentioned something about, was it the, when it came to the sacrifice, something from the Jewish um, rabbinic writings, right? Um, on the the sacrifices was it the not the veil being torn something oh yeah you're talking about the the red fabric yes sir that's it that's it and can you talk to us a little bit about that yeah yeah and so that was something that by the way i found in a book called i think it's called reading moses seeing jesus okay Um, fantastic book uh it's put out by one for israel which is a messianic jewish organization which i think is important to mention too that I, I want to just bring up this distinction, then I'll tell you because it's an amazing story from the from the about the red fabric. But mm-hmm. the the idea of messianic Judaism are people who are ethnically Jewish, right? But they've come to faith in Jesus as their savior, and mm-hmm. so they are essentially theologically. And I would just went out to a messianic Jewish conference in Pennsylvania a couple months ago, and it was so inspiring and cool. But they're essentially the same as what you maybe call mainstream Christianity in terms of they are um, their theology is that even though they do though they do keep Sabbath, they do keep mm-hmm. the kosher food laws and the feasts and all that. They're not doing it as a matter of salvation or even as a matter of being right righteous with God. They understand that their salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. They call him Yeshua, Yeshua right. Hamashiach. Right. And so. 
and so they they know that the reason they're living it out is really more about an identity marker as a Jewish person, not mm-hmm. about salvation. It's not a requirement that God's given them or anything like that. Um, and so the difference, though, and it's important to notice this, is that the the um, Hebrew Roots movement differs from Messianic Judaism in two ways. Number one, Hebrew Roots uh, even black Hebrew Israelites, uh, Torah mm-hmm. keepers, whatever you want to call yourself, they are 99.99% Gentile, not Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's, uh, and Goyim. I always say, I, yeah, they're, they're, Goyim. Yeah, they're Goyim, <laughs> yeah. And the only reason I don't say a hundred percent is just to leave a little wiggle room, but I've never once met anyone of the Jew of Jewish ethnicity that subscribed to Hebrew roots or any of that. Gotcha. Um, the other way that they differ though, is that and this is a key point. And when you're talking about Torahism as a false teaching versus just the idea that, hey, I just want to keep, you know, I want to have a Passover Seder. I want to keep Shabbat because I feel like that's how I want to express. It's my personal decision or choice on how to express my faith. Well, Mm -hmm. so there's, the difference is Hebrew Roots teaches, oh, it's not a personal choice. It's not an option. It's mandatory. Uh, And that's where you get into a big problem. Um, Right, right. So the position I've come to believe about the new testament and i'll wrap this up and i can tell you that story from the talmud but the 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 um position i've come to is permitted but not required that gotcha. that's that's what the new testament teaches about sabbath and feasts and kosher right. food right. you want to do it go for it that's great but once you start preaching that i have to do it or any other christian has to do it or it's part of their salvation we're in really dangerous territory that's now. that's when the problem arises yeah now we're yeah. now we're talking about a different gospel and that's nothing right. to mess around with yeah so yeah. the idea, um, which again, is from that book, uh, mm-hmm. um, reading Moses, seeing Jesus, but it talks about in the Talmud, for those of you that don't know, these are, this is what's called rabbinic literature. So it's not scripture. It doesn't have that authority, but it's has a lot of historical value. Yeah. And, and what they record is that in the Talmud, which is a collection of writings, I guess we don't need to go that too much, but they're talking about at the end of the day of atonement, right? Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. like we talked about. Um, that the high priest would wait for God's kind of stamp of approval. And again, remember, this is the day of atonement. This is the day of the year where they made their their sacrifices to be forgiven. And so the, the high priest would kind of wait for um, sort of an acceptance. Is there a visual example of the uh, Israel's atonement and them being accepted and forgiven and you know all that stuff? How is God right. going to show that? Well, uh, according to the Talmud, there's a there's a inside the temple, there was this red fabric. Uh, I forget the Hebrew name for it, but, and that piece of fabric, according to the, again, to the Talmud would miraculously turn from red to white as a sign every Yom Kippur as a sign to the nation that, Mm -hmm. Hey, God had accepted their sacrifice and their sins were washed clean. Like we read about in Isaiah. Right. Um, And well, and and I, I should say washed clean for another year, because remember (laughs) you had to do this every year under the the Mosaic covenant. So what you end up seeing is that the sages were writing in that, I forget which tractate it's in, but that that 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is what's really key. Remember that the the, the temple was destroyed in the year 70. Right. So 40 years prior to that would have been the year 30. This mm-hmm. would this is the year, the, the time, I and mean, we don't know the exact year, but that, that most people believe Jesus was crucified. Right. Uh, modern, I think the most updated timing that we have is Jesus was probably born somewhere between four and six BC, because mm-hmm. there's been some weird calendar stuff over the years. And then he was ultimately crucified around the year 30. So when, 
when the when the uh, the Talmud says talks about you know forty years prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, so around the time Jesus was sacrificed, mm-hmm. that red fabric stopped turning white on the Day of Atonement. So mm. this. So, and, and the Talmud actually goes on to talk about how this caused all kinds of panic and distress among the priests, like, oh no, has God not accepted our sacrifice? Something's wrong. And what's interesting is they were writing this after Christ. And right. so it's interesting that they would kind of admit to this big change because what it's essentially seemed to be saying now that we can kind of look back, you know, uh, hindsight is 2020, right? That God Mm -hmm. was no longer honoring the Sinai covenant as the way to cover Israel's sins, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it seems to be implying is that, and and what they say, what these Jewish scholars who wrote this book were talking about is they're saying, well, what does that mean? What happened to the Sinai covenant? Well, the answer they said is that the law is now fulfilled in a new way, not not by something that's going to temporarily cover our sins for a year, but Mm -hmm. by someone who's going to atone for our sins once and for all. So that's a really cool story where you've got this sort of accidental endorsement in Jewish rabbinical literature that something huge happened in the year 30 that changed God's relationship to his people. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It points to, uh, you know, the validity because the Talmud has nothing nice to say about Jesus. Right. Oh yeah. There's <laughs> hey, nothing nice to say. So, yeah. you know, it, it points to some, um, validity as far as what transpired maybe even uh the veil being rent torn that's what i thought of when i read that um in your book was when the gospels say that uh the veil was rent right and then i read that and which is fascinating because i never heard of that until i read your book um so i know we don't kind of crunch time with 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 time can you talk to us i think the biggest one and even for myself was the sabbath Mm, yeah that's a huge one right because that I think that's one that catches people where is their argument on show me where the Sabbath changed. The Sabbath never changed. And I think you do a brilliant job of laying this out in this chapter. Can you talk to us about did the Sabbath change and how can we have a good. Not to say comeback as in an argument, but uh, how can we clarify our position as Christians that we don't have to keep the Sabbath? Yeah. So this is, uh, going back to some of our earlier comments, this is where things aren't as black and white as we wished. So God requires us to do some digging to understand it. And and I Mm -hmm. believe, um, what's, I saw a meme going around. That was great. You know, when God put a calling on your life, he factored in your stupidity, which (laughs) really resonated with me because nobody's got perfect theology, right? I mean, we, we, what we need to do is earnestly as genuinely as possible, try to seek for that truth. Yeah. And so, what the what my in, um, interaction with Hebrew roots, especially up front, really made me do is question this stuff. I had been keeping a Sunday Sabbath, so to speak, and I put air quotes around Sabbath because I wasn't keeping it in the way that the Mosaic commands were. Right. And when I when I came to this argument, I had to say, "Wow, is that could that be true? I have to go figure this out." And what I quickly learned is there is no black and white. Um, verse that says you are required to keep the Sabbath or a verse that says you are no longer required to keep the Sabbath. The, the New Testament says neither of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as you know, I mean, from the book, 
I dug into the Sabbath pretty deeply. I looked yes, at it from four totally different perspectives. Right. One of them talking about is Jesus our Sabbath rest. And I've got videos on on all these two as well, but they're all covered in, in the book in that chapter. But so one one aspect, what does Hebrews mean when they say Jesus is our Sabbath rest? Mm-hmm. And and you know, and the second aspect would be like, what what do we what do we do as far as the mosaic, the application of the mosaic commands of any sort, not just the Sabbath, but you know. What, what, how do we apply that to our lives? How should that properly be expressed by a Christian today? Right. Uh, and so we have to look at that from that perspective. And then you got to ask yourself, okay, I actually did a really deep dive. What does the New Testament say and teach about the Sabbath? And what doesn't it teach? Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, is interesting. I think it was uh, Spurgeon that said, where scripture is silent, we need to be silent also. Right. So it, I try to be mindful of that and not, um, not, read stuff in between the lines, which I'll just be honest. I think that's a common mistake um, of, of Hebrew roots keepers today. They will read the Torah and by that. They mean the law of Moses into pretty much anywhere, any verse that I'd like to say, they see it behind every shrub and bush, which is just kind of a tongue in cheek way of saying it. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I, so what I've come to, and it's really hard to give you a single soundbite. So I apologize for rambling, but the, no, that's good. Really, first of all, I would say that there, there, let me let me address maybe two different things. One of okay. them is, one of them would be the idea that the Sabbath was established as part of creation. So this is mm-hmm. a very common argument that you'll hear from our Hebrew roots friends and your Seventh Day Adventist friends too, and anyone else who thinks. So what they'll do is they'll say, "Look, this is their argument. The Sabbath was established as part of creation, right? God blessed the seventh day, and they're they're thinking of of Genesis two, mm-hmm. uh, and He made it holy." even before the law of Moses was given. So, so many of them think, believe that, that Shabbat, just like marriage, was really a, cre- a creation ordinance given to all mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's, there's the idea that um, the weekly rest is even goes beyond the law of Moses. It's, a, it's part of the natural order of creation. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do is unpack that a little bit. And, and there's, it actually turns out that there's a couple problems with that theory that come to the surface once you start digging into the text, both of Genesis and uh, in the Torah, but also in the New Testament. And the first and probably most obvious is that the creation account in Genesis doesn't command or establish a day of worship or a day of rest at all. In fact, it, God issues no commands at all regarding the seventh day of creation. He, he mm-hmm. blessed it and he made it holy, but there were no commands, right? Right. So what it's teaching is that that God cre- God ceased from his work on that seventh day and he blessed that day and that's it Mm -hmm. anything more you want to read into it is something that you're reading into it now i'll get to how it ties to the exodus in a second but Mm -hmm. uh, this is where we get to have fun with our languages here so the hebrew word shabbat actually isn't used as a noun until exodus 16 when we first hear about the weekly rest what we're seeing in genesis 2 is the is the verb shabbat Mm -hmm. which means to cease or to rest and Mm -hmm. which makes sense because why would God need a physical rest from creation? He right. wasn't tired. It was a right. rest of completion, mm-hmm. right? And so that's what creation day is. And what's even more interesting, if you unpack it a little bit, I just did a video on this too, for anyone that's interested on my channel, but the seventh day never ended. So you see in Genesis one, you know, it was the even, morning and evening, first day, morning and mm-hmm. evening, second day, and so on. But the seventh day never ends. So technically what you see in Genesis two is God, rested on the seventh day, 
made it holy, meaning set apart from all the other days of creation. It was different than all the others because he didn't mm -hmm. create anything on the seventh day. Mm -hmm. And then it goes right into God uh, interacting with Adam and Eve in the garden. So you get this very strong sense, oh, the seventh day was peace in the garden. It was, yeah. you know, so, so, so it was um, in a sense, never ending. We're still in it, you could almost say. Right? Yeah, it, yeah, it's kind of this Edenic uh, garden setting for humanity was the idea that we get out of Genesis. Like, like I've said before, if all we had for Scripture was Genesis, the Book of Genesis, if that's all God gave us, mm -hmm. there would be no weekly Sabbath. There mm -hmm. is no command in that book for us to have a weekly rest. So that's one thing that we need to distinguish is that the Sabbath that God gave at Sinai was was tied to creation because it's the same tempo or the same uh, seven day pattern. Mm -hmm. But God didn't go back to work on the eighth day of creation, right? There's no eighth day of creation. Right. So yeah. the weekly Shabbat is sort of a type of what God did during creation, but it's not a commandment given at creation. And that's an important distinction. And then the second problem that I would point out with this idea is that there's no biblical evidence anywhere in Genesis all the way up to Exodus 16, where we first see it given, that, that the weekly Shabbat was kept by anyone prior to God giving it to Israel, right? Mm -hmm. We don't see Abraham keeping it, Noah, any of the early patriarchs, none right. of them were keeping it. So, right. so it's reading into the text. That would be my argument. It's eisegesis. They're reading the idea into the text. Oh, yeah. like, well, it doesn't say it, but God really did intend Sabbath for everybody. Although there's no evidence for it, and although the text doesn't say that. So this is where we get into the idea of, as a Christian, if someone just tells me, you should be keeping Sabbath. Why don't you? And I, the first thing I think is, oh, that's a great point. Once I look into it, and this is why I argue so much for, or not argue, but push for biblical literacy, especially in churches, yeah. is that if I'm wrestling with the, with the text, I'm starting to say, well, wait a second. I'm not sure that's an accurate argument. And then if we want to take it into the New Testament, I'm rambling a little bit, but let me just finish it up with this. There is nowhere in the New Testament where we are commanded to keep the Sabbath. So Absolutely. there is a lot going on regarding the Sabbath in the New Testament. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. Jesus right. is, um, he's expecting or assuming that at least his Jewish followers will continue to keep the Sabbath in the mm -hmm. future. He talks about, you know, pray that when you flee to the mountains, it's not on a Sabbath day or, uh, and so there's an idea that, okay, I'm, I'm assuming everyone's just going to keep it. Now, what there isn't is any of the commands that we see in the Old Testament, which is really interesting because what is the Old Testament command in addition to do no work, light no fires in your house and all that kind of stuff? Right. It, also, it also commands death for people who desecrate it. Mm. So are we, are we, are we only accepting the, the Sabbath commands that we like, so to speak, and not accepting right. the death penalty that goes with desecrating it or have, has something changed? Yeah, And so what's interesting, and we go back to the Ten Commandments, and I'll kind of wrap up with this, but is the idea that, okay, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. How could it possibly not be enforced? Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, what I'll say is this. The, I believe the Sabbath is expressed. I believe the, the moral principles behind the Sabbath exist today which mm -hmm. is setting a time, setting aside time for God, setting aside time for your family, Absolutely. resting, um, all that kind of stuff is, are still applicable, but they're not, they're not um, manifested in a seventh day rest that we, mm -hmm. we, we carry out those, those types of principles in a different way. And yeah. so when you look at the 10 commandments, you, you see that only for whatever reason, and I just did the math. I'm, it's not even my opinion. 
only only nine of them are repeated or endorsed in the New Testament. All the yeah. other nine of the Big Ten are endorsed and repeated, sometimes verbatim. The Sabbath never is. So yeah, yeah. You have and you have it in your book. You say um, on page uh, page ninety one. You say the first three commandments, while not repeated directly, are clearly taught and endorsed. Yep. The last six commandments are repeated from the Torah verbatim. The commandment about the Sabbath is not repeated, endorsed, or taught. And then you go on to point out that when Jesus Yeshua is in discussion with the Jewish leadership over Shabbat, it is always a point of confrontation. It is, it is, they're going at it. So yeah, he's correcting them about it. Yeah, right. You know, and your your footnote um, footnote ten on it on ninety two it says this occurs in twelve out of twenty two passages in the New Testament, which is more than half. Yeah. So, you know, that just that I think that's a that's a strong point as far as like when you discussing or talking, having these conversations about keeping the Sabbath. Right. Okay. No, it's, it's risky. It's risky to argue from a negative. Right. From, a, from a lack of, but, but what I really believe as I've dug into it and you saw, I was kind of counting up verses and trying to figure out what exactly is going on. I think it, mm -hmm. it, I think it's a silence that echoes really loudly considering that in the Tanakh, it, this was a commandment written by the finger of God on a tablet. This yeah. was a commandment that was punishable by death if you didn't keep it. And suddenly in the new Testament, we're not talking about it. We're not mm -hmm. repeating it. That's pretty, that to me, that's a pretty big deal. Very big deal. Very big. And uh, even, you know, when you see these points where they, they get ready to kill Jesus, because some some claim, well, and you will get into later on, you'll get it. We probably won't have time now, but talking about Christ's divinity. Right. Uh, and then even even in other religious aspects, well, th the biggest thing is, well, show me where Jesus said, I am God. Worship me. Hmm. But when we understand his culture, just going back to understanding context, um, as what Dr. Paul Mayer points out, Jews at this time never answered anything bald facedly. So it was never a direct yes or a direct no. It was always, you know, when you basically when you see them get ready to pick up stones and kill Jesus or try to push him off a cliff, they understood what he was saying. And I am Lord of the Sabbath. They understood what Jesus was saying because they understood, well, who initiated the Sabbath was who? God. So he's equating himself on in, you know, as deity. So mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. That's what, I mean, it, I forget which passage when he's, when he's before the Sanhedrin, the, the high priest says, you've heard it for yourself. What more do you need to hear? This is right. blasphemy. He's I think it was Daniel seven passage. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Daniel and seven. Yeah. It's when Jesus said, I, yeah, I come riding on the clouds. And so right. there, you, you have to work super hard not to see him claiming divinity. I know it's not the words they want to see, although he does right. say ego a me, right? I ego am. a me. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so there is, and it, and it does refer to him as theos sometimes in the Greek too. So right. anyway, it, yeah, you're right. That's exactly that, the point. And if someone comes out and says, uh, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, you know, then you go back to C.S. Lewis's, he's either a madman or he is who he said he was. Right. Because who would claim that? What regular yeah. guy would claim that, you know? Yeah. Even, you know, when he's, when he's casting demons out or healing the sick or the teaching, they always say, what authority? Because it was always, right in the name of rabbi such and such, such and such, you've heard rabbi such and such say it was, but Jesus said, you've heard it say, but I say, and so yeah. they, they, who is this man basically? Right. So, right. yeah, but, um, all right, well, I'm a, I want to ask you this question and I guess we, we'll, we'll wrap it up here and, and again, get this book. Um, 
Torahism are Christians required to keep the law of Moses because he goes into grave detail, even talking about Christ's divinity, um, uh, the Trinity, a uh, little bit there, um, unclean foods, the temple, priest, sacrifice, worship. Um, and so we'll we'll get into a little rapid fire game here in a minute. I ask you just a few questions and you got to answer in a minute or less. So, but anyway, <laughs> it's a challenge for me, but okay, uh, I accept the challenge. It's cool. It's all right. Um, I want to ask you this. Do you think that people who tend to use the law, and I'm saying to our Taurus friends, that they have a problem understanding grace? Yes, to a degree. Okay. Um, this is so, yeah, it gets really nuanced here, but to a degree, yes. And, and I absolutely uh, empathize because it is scandalous mm-hmm. that I don't need to do anything in order for God to consider me to be righteous other than have faith in his son. Yeah. Uh, that I, uh, n- not that I can get away with uh, Christians are not lawless, by the way, I'll, I'll say that a lot of Hebrew roots will accuse us of that. We've got the law of God that, mm-hmm. you know, the law of Christ, as Paul calls it is very much our guiding force, but the idea that keeping Shabbat, eating kosher, keeping the feast, none of that can add a single thing to your righteousness before God is hard sometimes to accept because I believe that's what draws them into it. And it, to give to give our Hebrew roots friends some credit, I believe there is a sense of wanting to lean in, get closer to God, love him more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they think that by living out those things that God, they'll elevate themselves in God's eyes or they'll show how much they love him. Um, and it all gets very convoluted. And next thing you know, they're living from those righteous activities, which Paul called animal dung, yeah. you know, in Philippians, uh, and thinking that those things count in that way when, when mm-hmm. they don't, you, you can't mm-hmm. add anything to what Jesus did for us. It was right. complete, you know? And so I do think there's a sense of the legalism kind of takes over people sometimes like a fever. I've heard people, I get, I get a dozen messages a day, at least from people telling me their stories about their wives, their husbands, their friends, their whatever, uh, who have suddenly gotten into this world and they become so legalistic mm-hmm. they lose the entire grace side of the equation yeah and there it's noble to want to obey jesus but to keep yeah. that in the proper proper balances is difficult you know i um i took a missiologist a couple of missiologists uh missiology classes in seminary there was an article i wish and i'll probably shoot you an email with this i don't you may have it uh but a missiologist was talking about there are certain groups that he has observed, um, albeit eth- ethnicities and people who have been to jail mm-hmm. tend to gravitate towards keeping the law. Yeah, I've seen uh, that. because it's like I need to do X, Y, Z to keep me on track to reach A, B, C, D, you know? Yeah. So it's also a very Western way of thinking and it makes right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, t- I tell you what, instead of instead of rapid fire. Do you have time for two more questions? I do. Yeah. Let's okay. Do I, let's, I wanted to, let's do that because it'll build up to next. So we'll, we'll touch on the Trinity. Okay. Are all of them Trinitarian or do they just go with oneness? Oneness, oneism, oneness. <laughs> Unitarianism. Yeah. No, it's Unitarianism. Uh, there we go. It's divided. Okay. Uh, now I should say there's a wide spectrum. I kind of mentioned that before. There's not one monolithic belief system, but the spectrum gets really wide, and there is some tinfoil hat edges to this spectrum. Mm-hmm. Folks that 
our Hebrew roots and also argue for a flat earth, things like that. Oh, yeah. So somewhere on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I don't see the connection other than maybe folks who are predisposed to believe in a flat earth are predisposed to these false ideas about the Torah. But anyway. Right. To answer your question, there's a there is uh, I've I've heard from plenty. Matter of fact, I just debated um, a couple months ago a rabbi, Rabbi Tovia Singer, on the question: Was Jesus the Jewish Messiah? And uh-huh. afterwards, several folks came up to me and started really arguing with me about Unitarianism and how the Trinity's not. And these were guys who believed in Jesus but weren't. Anyway, it's it's rampant everywhere. So mm-hmm. w- one of the big issues that I see is that here's what I actually heard from the mouth of a Hebrew roots person. Jesus says he's the door to the Father. So why do you stop and worship the door, and instead of going on to worship the Father, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's a very. Um, it reminds me of the early heresies we read about in the early church, right? And, and, and the Trinity, I will grant, is a difficult concept. I mm-hmm. don't think there's any really good analogy in in life because right. the Trinity is a one of a kind, unique entity. Yeah. But, Although it's difficult and there's great mystery, there's also no contradiction in it. And mm-hmm. further, Scripture is really clear uh, about this about the idea of a triune God. Yeah. So yeah. So what what they'll get into, and here's where I think it I, th- I think where it overlaps with Hebrew roots. Many folks, not many, I don't know the amount. Some I've talked to <laughs> in the Hebrew roots are on this sliding slope down into Judaism. Gotcha. And I have met a couple people who eventually ended up rejecting Jesus and fully wow. converting to Judaism. And one of the big rocks you're going to hit as you slide down that slope is the nature of God. Was he a Trinitarian, a triune God, as Christians mm-hmm. claim? Was he a, a, a monotheistic God, as they believe Jews have always believed? Although yeah. we could get into it. There was something known as Jewish binitarianism that... Yeah, the two power, two, right, two, yes. two Yahweh theory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's been a so lot of work done on that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of academic that, work. It's super interesting. And it, it at least opens us up to the understanding of how Jews could accept Jesus, a man, yeah. as God in the first yeah. century. Right. But so that's that's where it falls. And I think, you know, I'm obviously a Trinitarian. I, I really believe that the Bible teaches uh, in some, there's not a verse that says God is three people, you know. Yeah. I think some people want to see, but yeah. And I think too, in in the Greek, it would in certain play, it would refer to Jesus as a parakletos. Pardon me, because I'm not an expert. Right. And then, you know, from God, and then the next one would be the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. So you have in this Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right. And then if you go back to the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, when you talk about um, the two Yahweh theory would would be there's the invincible portion of God uh, where he chose not to manifest. And then there's the portion of God where he manifested the visible portion. Yeah, um, there's some work that's been done. Let me peer around here. I just had I was just talking about him. Um, he's since passed away. But um, Alan F. Siegel, Two Powers in Heaven. He yeah, writes yep. on that. Yeah, I got that book. Yeah. That was yeah. actually one of the primary or one of the main arguments in my debate with this rabbi. Right. And he was a rabbinic scholar. He was not. Yeah. A, I don't think he was Christian, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, he was not Christian. He was Jewish. Uh, I, don't, uh-huh. I don't know if he was a religious Jew, but I know he's ethnically Jewish. And he, okay. what, what he wanted to understand, the reason he even got into this was to understand why did my people used to think this back then? And why don't right. they think it now? What happened? Yeah. What changed? Yeah. Exactly. And then even Benjamin Sumer, he uh, in his book, uh, The Bodies of God in the World of Ancient Israel, mm-hmm. 
he writes, and I think he's Jewish as well, says, is, yeah. uh, you know, some Jews, and and this is what he writes on uh, page 135, uh, Christianity in light of Judaism's embodied God. Some Jews regard Christianity's claim to be monotheistic religion with grave suspicion, yep. both because of the doctrine of the Trinity, how can three equal one? And because of Trinity's, of, I'm sorry, because of Christianity's core belief that God took bodily form, biblical Israel knew very similar doctrines, and these doctrines did not disappear from Judaism after the biblical period. So, right, yeah, you know, I, he goes I, I, into he he does a good job detailing that whole argument. I don't want to you know sit there and read his whole book, but <laughs> no, it's, no, it's great. And there he's got there's some uh, videos out there of him giving lectures based on that book, and, and right I, in one of them he really just says, "Look, I don't, I'm very reluctant to admit this as a Jew, but I'm also a scholar, and I got to go where the data leads me." Exactly, and that's you know, challenging, you know that. Uh, yeah. Who was it? Uh, shoot. Michael Lacona said that Craig, when uh, Craig Blumberg told him, said, you know, you got to follow truth no matter where it leads you. And it's uncomfortable. You know, yeah. there's some oh books gosh, I told some. Sure. <laughs> I told some people, I was like, look, I have a lot of books and they don't all agree with what I believe. Right. You know, there's sometimes I, I get to a portion. And I'm ready to throw that book out the window. Oh, I hear you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But oh, yeah, it's, it's like God will say, well, how are you going to be a scholar if you don't? read widely you gotta read widely i need yep. to know what they believe just as much as they know what i believe where i right. stand so and and at the end of the day all truth is god's truth so if it's, it's god's true truth. if it's true and i don't like it well that's too bad for me you know i mean exactly the bible's the authority on this stuff so you, we have to submit ourselves to scripture and to god and right. you're right man sometimes it is quite uncomfortable it is it it, it it's just like oh man it makes you cringe you know but it is you know you have you now have an opportunity to really refine what you believe in. And maybe you might have been wrong on a point. You know, I've, I've discovered that for myself, I'm not saying, you know, whomever, but just it right. helps you out a whole lot. And, you know, you're going to be exposed a lot, especially if you do decide, if you feel like God is leading you to go to school, you know, for whatever biblical studies, theology, you will be challenged even on your side of the aisle, you will be challenged by what you believe. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's a little scary. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So and we'll close out with this one because we're getting ready to approach holiday season. Uh, yep. Some people already started putting up their pagan Christmas trees. <laughs> they just put down the big the big pumpkin for the pagan Christmas tree. Constantine right. changed everything. Talk to me about that. Well, OK, there's. Yeah, this is this is for the next two hours. We could talk about this. Um <laughs> Hey, if you uh, want to come back and do another show, we can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man. Oh, yeah. I love talking to you, Trevor. Um, I'll be I'll be down for that. So here, so a couple of quick things, and I'll keep it constricted to the context of 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 quote unquote pagan holidays. Um, there, and I've got some videos on this too because we you need to kind of go into it as a mature believer, uh, mm -hmm. understanding several things. First of all, um. Oh, gosh, where do I even start? So let me talk just about Christmas and Easter overall. Like, should Christians keep them? Are there pagan roots? Did Constantine start these things? Uh, or did somebody start them? Why is it called Easter? Isn't that named right. after Ishtar? All that stuff. If you, you, know? if you want it, if you want to in a nutshell, and then maybe if you want to come back, I would love to do an episode, especially around this time of year, just on this topic alone. 
because yeah, my timeline yeah. on social media is already blowing up with this is pagan, blah, 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 blah. Same. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm saying like you guys are giving Constantine far too much credit because Constantine just really wanted to unite his empire. Right. But anyways, go ahead. You there. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Christmas. So so if we think about it, I, I have we have to make a distinction. And this is where I mean, trying to approach things as mature Christians. There's a difference we have to admit today, especially between the Christian celebration of the birth of Christ mm-hmm. and secular Christmas with Santa Claus and elves, right? So there's differences there. There's a difference between the Christian celebration of the resurrection of Jesus right. and Easter with the bunnies and the colored eggs and the candy. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I will, I will defend the Christian um, versions, the Christian commemoration of these important things in history and they're very defendable biblically too. Um, so I'm going to set aside just for the current time. We'll, we can talk later about the secular versions of those holidays if you want. Okay. I, I'll, I'll give you this nutshell. I, I'm a firm believer that what we worship is what we set our hearts and minds on. Right. So if you're not bowing down before your tree and thinking about it and telling it how it's great it is, you're not worshiping that tree. That's ridiculous. Right. So, but so the idea of uh, of Easter and Christmas both emerged naturally, historically speaking, out of the early church. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, we could get into the controversy between Passover and Easter that mm-hmm. happened early on. Um, but essentially the commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus, even Paul says, there's nothing more important in our faith. If that's not true, then everything we're doing is in vain. Everything, right. Is, so, is... so are you suggesting my Hebrew roots friends that we don't acknowledge or commemorate the resurrection? And they'll mm-hmm. say, yeah, because it's not in the Torah. And then we say, well, what about in John 10, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating Hanukkah, right. or what they call the Feast of Dedication back then. Uh, that's a man-made holiday that wasn't given in the Torah. And mm-hmm. right there, that is our mandate. If Jesus can observe God-honoring holidays that weren't given in the Torah, then we can do so too. It's, we know it's not a sin because he was without sin. Right. So on that basis, I would argue that we can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and we can celebrate the birth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if we want to now get into the more gray areas of, well, what kind of cultural uh, accompaniments can we have with that? Can we put stockings over the fireplace and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. I be- I'm, I'm really a firm believer that once you start going down that road, you are walking right into legalism. Because yeah. that's not the way God wants us to live out our lives. Well, is this checkbox? Is this on the good or the bad? You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. consider this. When Solomon built the temple, he used materials and labor from pagan nations around him to build Absolutely. the holy temple. Absolutely. So, so is there inherently wrong for Christians to use a Christmas tree as part of our cultural celebration of Christmas? Yeah. You know, and, and is it, is it, a sin to listen to white Christmas, that song, which doesn't talk about Jesus. Now I would argue that I think we need to keep our eyes focused and that we as a culture have drifted way too far away from the true meaning of those holidays. Absolutely. But I would, I would absolutely reject any idea that those are pagan and that by, and that by celebrating them, we are directly or indirectly celebrating paganism and worshiping false gods. That's, I think that's patently ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just my opinion. No, it's all good. That, that that's good because I, I mean, like I said, it's it's. I don't think people understand, you know, that history of Constantine. I mean, you had uh, the council or the meeting of of Arles, I think, 
Um, Are you talking about where, where he, he talked about Easter and when it should be celebrated? Right. I think that's when you had the bishops from England, present day England, that were there. And then they want their, they were not at Nicaea. If I'm not, uh, I'm not a okay. church historian. Well, but. well, so now in 325, the, the first council of Nicaea, that was the first kind of ecumenical gathering right. where there were bishops from everywhere, every part. Yeah. And one of the big things was the idea of when do we celebrate Passover versus Easter kind of thing. Um, the Cordo Decimans wanted to keep Easter, so keep the commemoration of Jesus' resurrection on the 14th day of Nisan, which is the mm -hmm. Hebrew month. When you for, uh, Hebrew uh, In the Hebrew calendar, 14 Nisan is the date when you celebrate Passover. Mm -hmm. And Passover is tied to Jesus, obviously, at the Last Supper. It was a Passover meal. So they're they're directly tied together in that Jesus was our, he was the fulfillment of the Passover typology we see in Exodus. Right. But now the question becomes, should Easter, which is a different holiday, yeah, should that replace or be in addition to Passover? And that was a big discussion. And if so... Many people in the empire at the time were trying to decide uh, half the people. I don't know if it's half, but so, one portion said, no, we should be celebrating Easter on a Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Mm -hmm. So it should be some folks argued it should be the first Sunday after the Paschal moon. So it was still during Passover, but it was going to be on a Sunday, which could be a different day every a different date every year. Others said, no, we don't go by that. We go by 14 Nisan. Whatever day of the week that falls on, that's the day we should celebrate Easter. It was tearing the, the empire apart. There was yeah. much you know, discussion and argument about it. And so what was decided at the Council of Nicaea by Constantine as the, as the emperor and de facto head of the church, which that's a whole other thing. I'm I don't know that that's our best hour as a church, but um, what he decided was not what day to celebrate Easter on, but that all should celebrate it on the same day, whatever you, whatever you choose. Mm -hmm. um, and so it went on actually celebrating Easter, even to today, the, the Eastern Orthodox celebrated on a different date. On than, a different day, right. Yeah. So yeah. it never was fully resolved, but that's definitely an issue. And people point to that, especially in Hebrew roots and say, look, Constantine ripped out the Passover and gave us Easter and, you know. They see that as a tearing away of the Jewish roots of the faith. Is there some contention there? Absolutely. I, mm -hmm. I would almost, I think I would be sympathetic to an idea of let's celebrate it on Passover in a sense. Mm -hmm. However, the resurrection, the, the Easter holiday, and this is, I think, where I finally land on this, is a unique event in history. It's not a re, it's not a, like the Passover is a remembering mm -hmm. of God bringing. Right. You know, Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and, and all that. And that's beautiful. And that should not be overthrown. Matter of fact, I celebrated a, a, a Passover Seder a uh, year before last with a Messianic Jewish okay. family. It was phenomenal. And, and they were pointing to all the areas that this points to Christ. And it was beautiful. So I'm not opposed to Passover. But I also don't think Passover and Easter, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, nor do they represent or commemorate the same things. Mm -hmm. Because there's nothing in the Passover story, Israel coming out of Egypt, that foretold about the resurrection. Yeah. I have a um a dear friend of mine. She uh PhD out of Cambridge, Hebrew Bible. So she um she's an elder in the Assemblies of God Church and she she does uh uh Passover Seder meals. So not yeah, as a great. right, not in the form of you know, tourism, but in a teaching moment. She right. She taught brilliantly at her church. Um, 
uh, uh, the Messianic uh, Jesus or the Jewish Jesus. And sure. so uh, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, you know, I had a conversation when I was out at, at the Messiah conference this year with some Messianic Jews, rabbis from all over the country, and I asked them what their thoughts were on this issue. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and there was some interesting things I learned. One of them that was is that among some Jewish believers and certainly um, Jewish religious Jews, not Christian, not Jewish believers in Jesus, but, you know. Judaism, mm-hmm. there is a sense of cultural misappropriation when they see a Gentile hosting a Passover Seder, because they say it wasn't your people that was in Egypt. It mm. was our people. And so yeah. there's the, now, whether that's right or wrong, it's just something to be sensitive about. And so one of the, one of the rabbis there suggested, you know, I think I, I love that Gentiles would want to observe a Passover Seder, he said, but I think the proper way to do it is is by having a Jewish family host mm-hmm. it and walk everyone through it. And Gentiles are more than welcome to attend and all that stuff, yeah, but that, yeah. but it being hosted and the prayers being read and all that stuff being done by someone that's ethnically Jewish. Right. Yeah. Which, and, I said, and, that was and, interesting. Yeah. And, you know, in the West, I think some people were trying to, oh, what are, you know, this whole issue which is you know it's it's in my opinion is is an identity crisis across the board you know when you don't realize who you are in christ it becomes a problem you try to find your identity in every single other thing but you know it's good to have that perspective uh there's numerous books written on the jewishness of jesus or jesus through middle eastern eyes because we can miss a lot like what does that mean i love in in john where the napkin was folded right by the door of the tomb. Well, what does that mean? It means that death was inhospitable and Jesus is not going to return. <laughs> and yeah. so we can miss that, that, stuff. that. Right. We can miss the context and that context is so context kills bad doctrine. There you go. I, love that. <laughs> I need that t-shirt. It will, Somebody needs to print that up. You yeah. know, context kills bad doctrine. So, or context is king, but, but yeah. Um, would you, would you like to come back? I would love to have you talk more on Constantine Christmas and, you know, yeah. Easter and, and it's all pagan and we're going to hell because of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. I love talking to you, Trevor. I'd be happy. Absolutely. To come back. Well, we'll work out a date and I know my audience, uh, uh, appreciate you coming on talking about this topic. Thanks um, for having me. absolutely. Absolutely. Again, get this book. It is not expensive. You can get, uh, it's uh, called again, tourism. Are Christians required to keep the law of Moses? Uh, I purchased my copy off of Amazon. Is there any other place that sells it? That's the best spot to get it. Best spot. Gotcha. Yeah. Especially that, if you have a prime membership, because you might be able to get it tomorrow. If there you, you go. Yeah. And I've actually started, I've got readers all over. So what's the really cool about Amazon is it'll print it out near them and ship it to them in other countries too. So. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Love technology, man. It's amazing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, if they want to get in contact with you, what is the best way they can do that? Okay. Yeah. You, you can go to rlsolberg.com. That's my, my primary website. You'll be able to get to my YouTube channel from there by clicking on the videos link. You'll be able to check out my books and, and I've got some blog articles up and contact me directly if you want. And you're on YouTube, got some debates as well on YouTube. Uh, Rabbi yeah. Tovia Singer, who's uh, I think he did some debates with uh, Michael Brown, too. Yeah, he did. Dr. Back Michael in the day. Brown. Yeah. yeah. He, was and, some and stuff. Craig Evans and some other scholars. Yeah. yeah. That I was think, a fun time. It was an interesting debate. It was a kind of a heady experience. But yeah, it yeah. Was very cool. I think Michael Brown, uh, Dr. Brown, um, he caught him on some points and he told him not to release them tapes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. And they still so, haven't been released. So no. So yeah. And actually, Dr. Brown was 
super uh, gracious and helped me out. I reached out to him. We don't know each other, but now we do. But yeah, uh, I reached out to him and let him know. And we actually met up at that Messiah conference in Pennsylvania. And he gave me some great advice. He actually reviewed my opening argument. It was just so it, it's fun to meet someone that I already had a lot of respect for his scholarship. And then to meet right. him and find out he's a genuinely kind man and he loves the Lord. I mean, that's, it's cool to see the real, real deal behind the scenes. So yeah, I uh, got to give him, got to give him props for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got a couple of his books here. Um, in fact, he's one for a public theology class on his, uh, weight loss journey. Cause he lost oh, a yeah. lot of weight and incredible, incredible amount. But, um, all right. Well, anyways, I'll tell you what. Thank you. Thank you for stopping by. We look forward to recording with you again. So y'all stay tuned for this because I want to release this around Christmas time. Hopefully our schedules work out um, because I'm pretty sure you all have already seen Constantine changed everything. It's pagan, you know, <laughs> old hell Christmas tree and this all, <laughs> all this other jazz. So, but listen, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for your downloads. Listen, we're across the world. I just looked at our list the other day. I know we're in England, India. Uh, South Korea, South Africa, we cross the globe and we thank God that uh, this is actually, we're doing ministry here. And so we don't ask for no donations. Um, I'm not taking up no offering. I don't make anybody subscribe to anything because the gospel is free. It's challenging and it should challenge you. You should wrestle with it, uh, but it is free. And I'm not charging anybody a dime. Now, if you are led to give, uh, just look below wherever you download your podcast and you'll see our information on how to give. Uh, even if it's a penny, we'll take that. Um, we're not picky. We all have full-time jobs here. So, you know, we're not beating anybody over the head for any money, but if you feel led to give, um, everything is used to fund our podcast. So, um, we thank you all extremely your payment, just a payment enough is just your downloads. So we appreciate you. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so on our social media. Uh, Instagram is TBT Hosea four six. Again, that's TBT Hosea four six. You can find us on Facebook at truth be told Hosea four six podcasts, as well as you can email us at TBT Hosea four six at gmail.com. Listen, thank you again. We love you. God bless you. We'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Thank you.